0: Hey there. Welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox,
1: and I'm Kate Nishimura.
0: How's it going, Kate?
1: Pretty good, thanks. How about you?
0: Oh, just peachy. Mostly because of the conversation we just had. It was so good that we had to take a break before recording this intro. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was. It was so good, and I'm really, really excited for everybody to get to hear this conversation.
0: Yeah. And if we haven't mentioned, and if you haven't realized what you've clicked on, you're, li- you're about to listen to a conversation with composer John Mackey. Uh, so it was mm-hmm. it was such a great treat to have him here and uh, he was so giving of his time and his his stories and everything. It was really great. But before we get to those wonderful stories and insights, we have a big announcement to make, which is very, very exciting. Yes, we do. We are going to be partnering with the Canadian Band Association, and they'll be joining us as a sponsor. (laughs) That was my Kate Nishmura fanfare from last week.
1: I know. (laughs) Uh, I always do that.
0: (laughs) But we're uh, very excited about this partnership.
1: Yes, this is something that we're very, very excited about. Dylan and I both have benefited personally from the CBA's activities um myself being an alum of the National Youth Band of Canada and Dylan doing lots of adjudicating and I don't know if you want to mention anything specifically
0: yeah um personally through conducting symposiums offered by the provincial chapters and in various community band events as I work with lots of community bands around the country Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so it's really exciting that we have the opportunity to um to partner with the Canadian Band Association um, and not only, you know, for them to be supporting us, which is super meaningful to us, but for us to be able to share a little bit about what they do and the opportunities that, that they have to offer for listeners like yourselves um, to get involved with a variety of things. So I really think that this is kind of a, a two-way, everybody benefits from this kind of situation. So it's very exciting for us.
0: Yeah. And you don't even have to be Canadian to benefit from some of the offerings of the Canadian Band Association. And I think that's kind of part of the reason we're really excited to be partnering with them. Um, so there's lots of things that you'll, starting in June, you'll begin to hear about through our kind of like word from the CBA every week. Mm. So things like uh, the Canadian Wins Journal, the Howard Cable Award for Composition, which, which Kate which is I a winner want. of.
1: Yeah, congrats. Back in 2017, was a good <laughs> it's old news by now, but yeah, yeah
0: old news. <laughs> Who cares? Chasing Sunlight, <laughs> y'all, y'all know it, um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, things like that and, and even though um, it's open to Canadian composers, um, if you have uh, an ensemble that's outside of Canada, you're more than welcome to join that consortium opportunity and lots of other things that we'll be talking about, the occasional uh, event from a provincial chapter that you'll be able to partake in and, and other fun and exciting resources yeah. offered by the Canadian Band Association, so thank you CBA for um joining us and yeah yeah how about that conversation today that was one of those like those one of those conversations i had to go away and be like that was that was just great it was one of those alex shapiro conversations
1: yeah <laughs> i think she would be happy to know that we use her name in that way <laughs>
0: yeah, she's a, you're a verb alex
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh no the conversation with john was was great um i mean i always especially love talking to other composers and just getting some insight into how their brain works and, and how they approach their work and their life. But John was so open with us about things like, you know, mental health and physical health and how being, uh, being a little bit more vulnerable can, can lead to a kind of growth in, in self and in work. Um, Mm. so that was really interesting. We talked about our cats. We all all have cats. So that was kind of fun.
0: And it got real confusing because my cat's name is his wife's name, Abby. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but we got it straight Never a
1: down. dull moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. We got it but no, it was a great conversation. And as I mentioned, it's, um, it's just really cool to, to, to hear those kind of stories of vulnerability and openness from, from people that we really look up to. And now that you know, we're lucky enough to be able to talk to them on the podcast and work with them um, in our regular lives outside of the podcast and all that stuff and play Mm -hmm. their music and and learn from them so it was just a really great time uh learning from john and yeah i think you're really going to enjoy it
1: well yeah because he's somebody that's like so popular and famous and admired by so many people high school students college university students band directors all all kinds of people Mm -hmm. um and you know to be able to uh get a, a little bit of a, an inside look at uh, at somebody that you kind of put on a pedestal a little bit sometimes, like to actually learn who they are as a human and how they think and how they work and what they feel about things uh, is, is always a real treat. So yeah, thank you, John, for, for doing that with us.
0: Thank you. Hashtag never change. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, could you just stop? Stop right now. Whatever you're doing right now. Thank push you pause. very much. I couldn't resist, sorry. (laughs) Just stop what you're doing right now. Push pause and do us a huge, a giant favor. And, And Kate, what could that huge and giant favor be?
1: Well, Dylan, it would be if people could go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast right now. And please hit subscribe follow, like, whatever version of that it is on whatever platform you're, you're listening to this on, uh, because that does, uh, does really help us so much. And if you could on Apple podcasts specifically, if that's where you're listening, if you could give the mm-hmm. Bandroom podcast a rating and a review, it really helps others find the podcast.
0: Yeah. And thank you for those of you who have gone and done that. And thank you to those of you who've told a friend a niece, a nephew, a cousin, people you don't even know about the podcast. We greatly appreciate <laughs> that. So thank you Shout so much for doing that. Shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> Shout it from the rooftops. And um, <laughs> one of the other things that happened to say was we recorded a really fun bonus episode. And part of the reason I love doing these bonus episodes is because we get to hear funny stories and it's really hilarious. But yeah. I'm learning a lot about the the composers that I perform their music, I'm learning so much (laughs) about them that has really nothing to do with the music making, but I just think they're, it's, they're crazy stories. So today is, is one of those uh, where you'll maybe learn something about John Mackey that you have not known before (laughs) (laughs) that involves presidential impeachments. Mm, That's all we'll say. Interesting (laughs) clue.
1: So if you want to hear that, mysterious bonus episode where can people do that dylan
0: well they could go to uh, patreon.com slash bandroom pod where you could hear that episode and many many more there's lots of great stuff there lots of great bonus content uh monthly zoom hangs with you and me and um other fun things like brp merchandise Mm-hmm. And i once again reiterate, soon to come, stickers. Yeah. Everyone loves stickers. No one can re- resist a good sticker. So um, <laughs> there true. you go, folks. <laughs> you can hear that bonus episode. But uh, anyway, we're going to stop talking in this form. So without further ado, here is our conversation with John Mackey. for another exciting episode of the bandroom podcast and today we have a great great treat for you we are joined by the one and only composer John Mackey welcome <laughs> to the bandroom <laughs> thank you thank you and now that i say one and only i instantly take it back cuz i know there's other John Mackeys but <laughs> i was going to say well yeah i was going to be like
2: uh i'm glad you specified composer because like yeah. oh no like it was hard to get my domain name because uh, there are other people much more famous who have my name, uh, like the guy who founded the Whole Foods supermarket chain, uh, the the founder of Whole Foods. So I get I get a lot of like sometimes people will send me like hate tweets about <laughs> service they received at a Whole Foods. I've gotten a couple emails from people who were really upset that uh, about how their uh, employment was handled at Whole Foods as if I can somehow like get them the promotion that their boss refused to get them at Whole Foods. So, um, and then there's, uh, the, uh, the greatest tight end in NFL history, uh, was named John Mackey. And, uh, uh, so there's a John Mackey award that is given every year to the best college tight end. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's been, you know, so if oh. I, so if I do any, if I ever search for myself on Twitter. It, they only talk about the other two. They never talk. I'm not ever there, but but I never know. Like when people say, <laughs> "Wow, I hate John Mackey," like I, I I don't know if they. I assume they mean me, but usually it's the Whole Foods guy. It turns okay. out. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good
0: to know. <laughs> But anyway, well, so thanks
2: for allowing us to clear up which one they're mm-hmm. listening to on this podcast.
0: Well, you know, it's sometimes not. sometimes the fans <laughs> cross over a little bit, so we got <laughs> yeah. to be careful. Uh, healthy eating and band. Um, right. So,
2: am, I like, but, am, I, am I big libertarian ways?
0: No, I'm not.
2: <laughs> I'm not like the other. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We can we can move on. <laughs> uh,
0: I guess we'll start at the beginning, as we ask every guest where, why, and how. Did your musicals journey start?
2: Um. So my uh, my parents were both amateur musicians, and um, I believe they met in community band. I know they played in community band together. Cute. Um, my mom was a flutist, and she played in community orchestras and stuff also. Um, and my dad played saxophone and trumpet. Um, mm-hmm. And but again, they were purely amateur musicians. My mother did want to be a professional flutist, but. Um, at the time, she uh, there were complicated things happening in her family, and so she had one option for, uh, for college, which was that uh, it couldn't cost anything. She was mm-hmm. told, like, you can go to college, but you will have no money from us for mm-hmm. college. So the only school that she looked at was the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, which is, you know, like yeah. – it's curtis it's you know with one of the best music schools in the world and um and she worshipped the guy who taught there at the time who was principal flute at the philadelphia orchestra for a long long time uh, william kincaid was his name and she uh she auditioned for him and uh after that told my father that it was the worst she'd ever played in her entire life like just got in the room with him like her idol and was just like i'm playing for my idol and if i don't do well I will not be a professional flutist was what she was saying. So I think that's not a good mindset to be in when she you know, did the audition. So the audition did not go well. She did not get in Curtis. And then um, and instead she got married and uh, kept playing flute, but just, you know, as you know, the best amateur flutist in, you know, the region basically,
3: because right.
2: uh, she was a, apparently a great, great player. Um, and I mentioned my dad played saxophone and trumpet. He played trumpet in one of the Navy bands, uh, In the 60s uh navy band i live in san francisco now uh he played at treasure island which is like basically right outside of san francisco so he was stationed here in the 60s as a trumpet player um and would be on like the navy ships when that would go out to japan and hong kong things and he would play you know on those and um but then after the navy he that was you know the end of his playing even remotely professionally. So right. although he played in like dance clubs and stuff in the sixties and seventies and in, in Ohio, like, you know, would play, you know, at, like, at a club or, you know, in bars or whatever, you know, it's like a little, you know, jazz group or, you know, blues yeah. group or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, my mom's playing like in you know, community orchestras and, and community bands. Um, and I asked, but yeah, so that was the extent of their, you know, like my dad was a computer programmer and my mom was a stay at home mom. Okay. So, um, But, uh, my, I have an older sister who is uh, eight years older. Mm -hmm. Um, and my parents, when, you know, she was really little, they thought it'd be really fun to like make her into a a musician since, you know, they love music and we're listening to music all the time. And they bonded over music and that was like their favorite thing in the world was music. So like, Oh, we'll we'll make, we'll make little Lisa into a, (laughs) into a, a little perfect something or other, some kind of musician. And, uh, they, you know, try to get her to play piano and she hated that. And, uh, I, I'm told that they tried to get her to play clarinet, but she would have been like seven. And I don't know mm-hmm. when one normally starts clarinet, but that Maybe seems, a little later than that. <laughs> yeah. That seems like not the most well, it like, I, just, I can't imagine that was going to be great that she'd like pick up a clarinet at age six or seven and be like, Whoa, this sounds great. Let's play the clarinet. <laughs> um, so she didn't like that. And, uh, really just kind of, you know, there was, I think, major pushback from her towards being a musician. And so, um, you know, kind of rebelled in a way that was just like, she expressed, like, I don't like music kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So then when I was born, I'm I'm eight years younger, um, when I was born, they were like, well, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're not going (laughs) to like, you know, put him at the piano and be like, play something little Mozart or whatever, you know, like they were, they were like, not they're like we're not going to screw up this one. So, uh, (laughs) not like my sister screwed up if she's listening, she's amazing. But, uh, as far as like, you know, the whole music is not her favorite thing in the world. She Mm -hmm. does like important stuff. She's like a, you know, she works with, uh, the elderly and she's like nursing and stuff. So she like does, has like a real, like Mm -hmm. a real job. But, um, (laughs) so, so yeah. So I apparently like, you know, we would like my, my mother would put on these like Chopin records all the time. Like we were, they were always playing records of classical music and, Um, you know, like Polini playing Chopin etudes and preludes and stuff. And apparently I liked that stuff. And we did have a piano at the time and I would go to the piano and I was like three or four and I would, you know, I tried to play the piano, but I can't play the piano. Um, I still can't play the piano. And I would have been even worse (laughs) when I was three. So like, you know, so I would like start, you know, hitting the piano and expecting to sound like, you know, Chopin revolutionary etude and it sounded like garbage. (laughs) And so I would cry and they would be like, oh, no. Oh no, we're screwing him up too. He's like <laughs> oh, crying geez. when he touches the piano. So get him away from the piano. Oh, this no. is gonna. Oh, it's awful. So um, they did, I guess they did. I know they got me some other instruments. Um, I had some kind of like a, not an electric guitar, but I had like an electronic guitar <laughs> that you would like, you know, push little tiny, like mm-hmm. tiny buttons. And then you would like touch another button, you know, the guitar uh,
0: hero type thing.
2: I mean, it's like that, but this would have been like the late 70s. So it was right. not on a computer. It was <laughs> yeah. just like a little standalone, like a guitar, yeah. but it was a guitar, but yeah. it wasn't like, <laughs> you know, it had no strings and you would just like push a button and it would like play the pitch corresponding mm. to whatever your other finger was pushing on, you know, what would have been a fretboard that was not a fretboard. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think I must, I still remember that toy. So that must have been kind of fun. And then my dad got me a drum set uh, when I was. I must have, like, maybe just turned four I got a drum set. Um, Because I remember putting on a record that I eventually tracked on another copy recently when I got a new record player. But, like, the first record that I remember is this record. And I think it was, it might have been called Monster Mash. So it had Monster Mash on it, but not not the original recording of, of Monster Mash, but like some really bad cover. Um, and it was like the whole album was like cover versions of you know scary ish songs. Right. Um, and uh, so I love Monster Mash, I would try to play my little drum set along with Monster Mash, but I don't think I could do that either. Um, <laughs> Just crying. And uh, yeah, so before I could before I got any good at any of at, at that part, uh, my parents got divorced when I was four. Mm. And so the piano stayed behind with Mm -hmm. my dad and, uh, we didn't bring the drum set or anything. So all the instruments stayed back at, with him. And, uh, and then since my mother had not, that's a really long answer to one question. We're only going to (laughs) get one, one, one question. Um, the, uh, because my mother, I mentioned had only been a stay at home mom. Um, she was not, and she didn't have any education past high school. So I'm like I'm the first person in my family to get any college education and complete a degree. Um so my mom had only you know gone to high school and um so you know she gets divorced she's you know in her I guess early 30s I think. Um and you know was not very employable like so she's you know she had only you know played in community orchestras and that's not a big paying gig that doesn't pay you anything. So yeah. <laughs> um so as a result we were really really poor. Um so for years we were super like so are you both canadian are you yeah. both in the yeah so um uh i mean so like in the i don't know what the equivalent is in canada but like in, you know, in the states so we were on like food stamps and yeah. you know welfare like we you know, there was just like uh like, I, not not impoverished poor but you know very mm-hmm. like very poor um and as a result of that you know if you if you live in an area where you are you know Severely economically disadvantaged. That probably means that you are not living in an area that has great education in general. Um, and uh, if things are going to be suffering, you know, at the educational level, one thing that for sure gets hit is music education. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were definitely not living in areas where I was going to schools where there was any talk of music at all, um, at least you know through elementary school. Um, and uh, so yeah, I was not. Anywhere around instruments, so I never learned an instrument. I mean my mother played a flute, but I didn't play really well. But I never, you know, was she was never like, let me show you how to, you know, play flute or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what instrument I would have expressed interest in. And I even if I had, I don't know that she would have necessarily done a great job about helping me in that yeah. way, weirdly. Um She was an alcoholic and there was a lot of like, not neglect, neglect, but there was like not the kind of nurturing that you get. I mean, so I I have a a single parent and then also, and then she's also an alcoholic. So there's just not a ton of like attention, like, oh, how, what do you need to be better at a thing you're interested in or whatever? Um, But again, I don't know that I was even showing like I, I liked listening to records and the radio, but that's not the same thing. But she was still, so she was playing chamber music all the time, playing community orchestras, singing church choir, and she couldn't afford babysitters. So every time she would go to some rehearsal for something, she would take me. So Mm -hmm. I was always in a room with live musicians um, and, you know, heard every orchestra rehearsal with like the two, probably not great community orchestras that she played in. But I heard every Sunday, you know, for three hours, I would sit in the high school auditorium where they rehearse and I would listen to them rehearse and hear, you know, how that would go. And. And then she sang in church choirs, and she would take me to church choir rehearsal on Thursdays, um, and then, you know, to church on Sunday morning to hear whatever the music was that, you know, they had prepared the part Thursday. So I was around it all the time, but again, there was not, at the school level, there was not access to it, and there was just not any kind of like, here, you should try it at home right.
3: either. Yeah.
2: Um yeah, then when I was 11, my grandfather, who who owned a music store uh, and played clarinet and flute and oboe, uh, my grandfather got the first computer in the family and mm-hmm. showed me one day. He's like, you want me to show you how to write music? And I was like, <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. Someone like ex- like offering to show me something with music was think like, yeah. like, super appealing. And it was a computer, which seemed super appealing because no, we didn't have, like, my family didn't have, this was like 1983. So like uh, no one in our family had a computer. Uh, and, you know, I said my dad was a computer programmer, but that's a different thing. You know, like he was right. programming computers from like, you know, the early 70s or whatever. Um, so, Jay, like, you know, my grandfather takes me back to the room where he has the, the Apple 2E and he's like, so here's how you write music. If you're in 4-4, four, four, here's how you make four beats. And if you're in 3-4, here's how you make three beats. And that's that's all you need to know. If you just put the right number of beats in a measure, then you, then you did it right. There's other <laughs> stuff that you could know. But uh, really, the only rule is put the right number of beats in a measure. Right. And I was like, okay, well, that's super easy. And so, you know, I spent that afternoon messing around with that and thought it was really fun. And uh, a couple months later, my dad got me my own computer, a Commodore 64, and got the same music program and um, just kind of would just throw notes at this program and just play it back and see what it sounded like. And the same, another thing that happened just by coincidence that same year is the movie Amadeus came out and yeah. uh my mom loved amadeus and so you know we saw amadeus multiple times and <laughs> i thought it was like i enjoyed the movie and also thought like mozart seemed really funny and uh like you know yeah you know, everyone thought he was fun at parties and like you know had a good social life and whatever and uh you know it sucks at the end because he dies writing his own requiem but it, like up until <laughs> that it's all pretty you know it's, it's pretty fun <laughs> um so i think the combination of like loving the movie and being like oh that's a that looks like a fun life mm-hmm. um and also getting access to a computer to mess around with music notation and just play you know software to play stuff back um that just seemed i just love doing that
3: yeah. and
2: so i did that um mostly put like I, my mom by that time got a job at ohio state university as a secretary in the music department and I would use her staff ID and I would go to the music library at Ohio state and I would check out all this stuff when I was like 12 years old
3: nice.
2: um, and take it home and sequence it and play it back. And that was, you know, I mean, I put in like, I don't even know how many hours of music that oh, I really? put in every single note, one note at a time with a joystick. Cause you couldn't do it with, <laughs> there was no MIDI. I didn't have a MIDI keyboard until yeah. I was like, in high school i think so everything yeah. was literally with the joystick moving yeah. the joystick up and down to select the pitch and then left and right to select the duration and then you hit fire and it would put it into wow yeah you know, the the like and you could and you the commodore could play three notes at a time but you could only edit one voice at a time and you couldn't <laughs> see the other two voices while you're editing one which i think is why i started write, writing so many ostinatos in my music so like for <laughs> the listeners who don't know what an ostinato is an ostinato is just like a repeated you know, baseline or, you know, it's a riff basically. Like if you ever listen to like the Michael Jackson thriller album, which also came out at the same time, this is all <laughs> the same year. Every hit from the thriller album is an ostinato or riff based tune. Like, right. you know, Billie Jean beat it mm-hmm. thriller. They all, all those songs have the same baseline, every measure, like until you know eventually it changes, but, and that's an ostinato. And I, so I heard those, I was writing music that I couldn't hear the other parts while I was writing the new one. So I would like, Write something that I knew would loop well, and I could listen to it in my head while I'm writing another part on top of it because I couldn't actually hear the first part while I was writing the second part. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get software that I could hear, like, see all three parts at the same time until a couple years later. Um, So I think that had a big impact on how I approached writing music. But yeah, so I was sequencing a lot of other composers' music and then writing my own a little bit. And over time, like, the ratio of how much I was writing of my own versus how much I was sequencing of other people's completely flipped. But,
3: right.
2: um, but other people's music is how I, because I was basically copying it like a way you yeah. learn to write music in like the, you know, 1800s is your teacher <laughs> makes you like hand copy copying, some other yeah. composers piece. Yeah. And by doing that, you really absorb it. And so I was doing that, but I was doing it with, you know, a joystick instead of my hand. So I put in like all six of the bach Brandenburg concertos. I put in most <laughs> of the, you know, and that's 90 minutes of music to play back. So imagine yeah. how long it took to enter 90 minutes of music. Yeah. I put in all of Mazorski pictures of an exhibition. I put in uh, most of Bach's well-tempered clavier and a ton of Bach just works really well on computers. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, we had a record when I was a little kid by this uh, artist named wendy carlos who had a moog synthesizer and she made these albums called switched on bach and it was bach on synthesizers recorded in the you know mid 70s and so i thought it sounded good so i think that was the other thing that made me be like well I'll just put bach in because that sounded good sounded good when wendy carlos did it um (laughs) and so i I was writing all this music and if it's all computer music but i was thinking it was going to be real instruments but i had no access to you know Mm -hmm. real people do it until like my senior year of high school when I eventually Mm -hmm. applied to music schools for college.
0: But I had never had
2: any formal music instruction until my freshman year of college. Everything was self-taught until,
0: until then. Well, there's there's just so many things that have come to mind whenever whenever you're talking about uh, how basically everyone in your family played a musical instrument and, and how they, you've been trying them. I often think about, um, people getting their musical instrument. Have you ever seen the show strange addictions? on TLC. I
2: know that show. I do know that show, but I have not watched <laughs> Cause it's always something Because it really seems strange. pretty strange. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah.
0: you know, I was walking down the street and a piece of dust fell on my mouth. And from that point on, I was obsessed with eating dust. And I often think about like when we, when we find that instrument, it's like so by chance that the right instrument will find you and that you'll, yeah, you'll be in love true. with it. But, um, yeah. and then the other thing, uh, you were talking about all, all those pieces that you've inputted and a lot of those, um, I think there I've seen them on your blog so people can actually listen to a lot of them, which is super, super cool. Um, but you know, you got your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours in there. Um, (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Yeah,
2: for sure. And it does, and it does mean I have a different approach to like how I work on my MIDI's when I write a piece because Mm -hmm. everything from the time I started writing music was conceived as like, how do I make the computer sound as much like what real people will do as possible. And I, w- when I would sequence like a Bach violin concerto, I because I did a bunch of the Bach violin concertos and and harpsichord concertos, um, I would listen to recordings to figure out how they would play the articulations because Bach has no articulations in it. So, but there's a very specific way of what gets a staccato and what doesn't. And I would, so I learned that by listening to recordings only because I was like, well, I'm going to make the computer sound like a recording of someone playing, you know, this Bach violin concerto, and this is how they. Articulate that which has no indicated articulations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was learning that stuff, and I was learning how to, I learned how to transpose that way because, you know, I remember putting in the first Bach Brandenburg has horns, and I think maybe I forget are they is it D horn? It's something screwy. And then like the <laughs> second Brand the second Brandenburg, I think has is it is it F piccolo trumpet in the second Brandenburg, but the the computer didn't. And it it, you weren't putting things in telling it what instrument it was. So you couldn't mm. be like, this is, you know, a Baroque horn in the key of D. <laughs> and it would be like, oh, OK, well, if yeah. you put in that note, I'll transpose it for you. Yeah. Like I had to be able to transpose it to the note that was the actual sounding pitch because it wouldn't do that for you at that point. Yeah. And the computer can only play three notes at a time. So if I was putting in, uh, I could put in a Bach three-part fugue. That worked great. But often they'll still add add another note or two in the last chord or something. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to figure out like what notes do I omit to make it still sound like what is giving you the indication of what the chord is. So I had to figure out stuff like that just out of necessity, which that's not necessarily a lot useful now, but Unless I'm writing right. a flex piece. <laughs> take <laughs> yeah. you know, take a take a full band piece and make it suddenly Surprise. Fall in four it parts. works. I mean that's <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean I guess it is kinda of like that. Like I guess I can do a, a flex piece because the first thing I did was the rever basically make flex for computer versions oh, of you, you know, <laughs> pictures at an exhibition. Or the the barber adagio for strings yeah. for only three voices right and a computer. Heroes. Oh, I should've I never did try to write a spring. <laughs> uh yeah, Stravinsky was a little a little beyond, I put in a lot of Barber, Samuel Barber though. And okay. that, that didn't work very well, but I, it was fun you know, <laughs> yeah. to try to, to try to do that.
0: From inputting all of, all of these tunes and to doing some of your own, um, it was off to the Cleveland Institute of Music, was it?
2: Yeah. So I, um, I only looked at schools that didn't require me to touch an instrument when I auditioned <laughs> because I couldn't play any instruments. Yeah. So I, yeah, I remember I, I called, um, I called just a couple, you know, Schools that I had heard of, or that my mm-hmm. mother knew were good. Um, basically, just like inquire, how do I apply as a composer? And um, yeah, for a lot of them, it was like, well, you, you know, part of your audition is to be proficient on some instrument, and so you mm-hmm. know, you need to if you play piano, you'll be expected to you know have a piano type audition or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. well, I'm not going for that school then. <laughs> um, you know, and I don't know if you've uh, spoken to Michael Markowski, but you know, he has the whole story about you know, he got into Arizona State University for composition, but Mm -hmm. needed to be proficient on an instrument. And his instrument was saxophone. Mm -hmm. And Tim McAllister has taught saxophone at Arizona State University. So, Mm -hmm. so that is like, just historically, an incredibly renowned saxophone studio. Mm-hmm. So he can't get into that. Like he yeah. can go to the comp studio, but he can't get in also on <laughs> saxophone. That's yeah. impossible. So he he was a film major, I think.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so he went to Arizona State, but it was not a, a comp major because he couldn't get into the studio because he couldn't play an instrument well enough to be proficient on one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I you know, didn't look. I think there were, somewhere I didn't look. I don't think I looked at Eastman. Uh, I probably just thought I could never get into Eastman anyway. Um, I didn't look at Curtis because that was too scary. Uh, (laughs) But I, I, so I only applied to two schools. I applied to Cleveland student music and I was, I'm from Ohio and it's a great school. And then I also applied to a little liberal arts school in the town where my high school was called uh, Otterbein college. I think it's Otterbein university now, but I would have been the whole composition department if I had gone there. (laughs) Um, And you know they have music ed but it, it's a really really small program
3: mm-hmm. so
2: that would just been a very different kind of you know education for me to to have so i got into both but i went off I went to cim because mm-hmm. um, that was a true like conservatory uh setting and you know learned a, a lot
0: and yeah. but uh
1: such a unique story <laughs> yeah
0: and like for someone who's who applied at schools you know that Either you needed to play an instrument, or you know, maybe you were a little scared to to apply, like you mentioned Eastman and things. How how was that jump to um, I don't know Juilliard? How did that happen?
2: <laughs> um, so I got into uh, Juilliard because I stalked my teacher at Juilliard. Oh,
0: as everyone um, does.
2: I so does everyone do that? <laughs> I it, I wasn't sure I if was that was weird the thing like to that. do.
0: Yeah. Were you? Yeah, they just like <laughs> they were like yeah, I, they were I mean, like baseball players to me when I would meet a new
2: totally yeah. yes. So like <laughs> uh, my uh, my summer job when I was uh, you know home from college was I worked at I worked at a record store in like suburb of Columbus Ohio where I you know grew up. Um, I worked at Camelot Music in Dublin Ohio and uh, I worked in the classical section, which was you know, which was fun because that was a, was a record store big enough to have like a pretty large classical department. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember one guy coming in one time and he was like, so I'd like, I'd like some organ music. And I was like, (laughs) okay. Uh, anything in particular, he said, not the kind the kids listen to. (laughs) And I was
3: like, what do you even
2: think that is? Like, (laughs) what, Uh, like, what do you, what anyway? So, um, but it was a great, it was a super, super fun job. And, uh, I would, listen to and or buy almost any like contemporary recording that came in so this is while I was an undergrad but home for like summer and winter break Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and um and there I I don't know where I had heard of John Corleano initially I don't know if it was from that job or not but uh I you know I I got a recording that we got in of his clarinet concerto and I listened to it I was like oh my god this is like the best thing I've ever heard this is Mm -hmm. like I don't even understand what's happening and I, it doesn't matter. Like it's so like crazy. I, I, and it's got antiphonal players in the balconies and, and, uh, it quotes Gabrielli and it like, and it was amazing. And, um, and that year, uh, at Cleveland Institute. Um, so one thing I did for the four years that I was an undergrad is I ushered every single week with the Cleveland orchestra. So I heard every mm-hmm. Cleveland orchestra concert for four years uh, which was amazing. And um, so they programmed uh the Corleano Clarinet Concerto while I was a junior at CIM. And I was like, holy crap, and he's coming like that. <laughs> I'm this is amazing. So um I uh through people that I knew at Severance Hall um, because I was an usher, I was able to get into the rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the rehearsals for his clarinet concerto and I sat like one or maybe two rows behind him but like close closer than i should have been like i know in hindsight like if if there was some kid like actually i I would think i was really sweet come to think of it if that happened in real life to me now that would yeah if the hall is empty except for like one clearly like odd kid who's like oh my god oh my oh my god (laughs) that might be that might be sweet. so um I remember sitting pretty close to him and just like being blown away seeing how he rehearsed the ensemble and hearing the orchestra play that piece and it's so i'd never heard it live before and to hear the actual surround sound antiphonal stuff happening in this amazing hall was just like i was even more blown away then and then uh he came in and he did our comp seminar that afternoon so the rehearsal was like that thursday morning and then he comes in thursday afternoon for the seminar to talk about the third Night concerto and um I loved every minute of that seminar, and then I saw him. So CIM is it's two floors, unless they've changed it, uh, two floors, and it, that each floor is a square. Um, so you can like walk down the hall, and you could endlessly walk in the equivalent of circles if you <laughs> wanted to do that. Yeah. Um, So I uh, I come out of the music library where I was, you know, it, so this was later that afternoon, um, and I see Donald Erb, my teacher, and John Corleano walking down the hall of CIM. And I'm like, oh, if I go the opposite direction, perhaps (laughs) I will pass them. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did that. So I like, I, you know, they're going to the left. So I'm going to go right, but walk really, really fast until I see them rounding the corner and I will slow down and very casually pass them. And so I, and I did, and I had recently won some composition competition and I thought, well, maybe I will become the topic of conversation if I pass them in the hall and it worked. So that happened. We passed each other, you know, uh, you know, Donald Herb said something snarky to me, and but then apparently after I passed, he you know, said nice things about me,
3: um, mm-hmm. which
2: was Herb's way. And then so I kind of just keep doing laps. <laughs> eventually, eventually I see that Corleano is now at the, he's at the, like the, at the reception area. at CIM. and so I you know walk up to him and just tell him again how much I loved his uh, his seminarte. And he's like, "Oh, I hear you're quite the competition winner." I'm like, "Oh, who who told you that?" You know, like, and I obviously know that my plan has worked. So, yeah. um, so, uh, he's like, Oh, you should, you know, you send me some music sometime. I'm like, Oh, well, maybe,
3: yeah, I, I
2: could, I could probably I have do right that. Here. And this is the whole, <laughs> right. The, well, the problem is I did not, but I did have uh, an ac- access to free Xeroxing. So, you know, he leaves, mm-hmm. I casually walk away from him, but then sprint to my dorm room <laughs> to get scores, which I then like run to like the copy machine, make copies of like four pieces and they're heavy. Like, you know, these are like, one's an orchestra yeah. piece and they're always chamber pieces and uh, you know, he wants me to send them to him, but I know what hotel he's staying in because I'm just that creepy. So, because there's only one nice hotel on campus, I'm like, I know he's got to be there. And so I like put everything in this big envelope, and it probably weighs like eight pounds or 10 pounds or something. And I carry it over and I go to the front desk and I ask if he's a guest, and they say yes. And so I leave it for him. So now this poor guy has to carry back like 10 pounds of someone else's paper. oversized mm. luggage now. Right? Exactly. <laughs> like, like, I, like, oh my, I can't imagine, I can't believe that I did that that, but like not only I like give them to him, but I, as much as I've traveled now, I think about how much luggage yeah. weighs yeah. and like how, how I only travel with an iPad now because the scores are so <laughs> damn heavy. The fact that I gave him four more scores to take home with him, like <laughs> is so just so lame. And then I went to the concerts every night, every performance. Right. I went to the pre-concert lectures every night and he made sure he saw me at the pre-concert lectures. And, um, and yeah, then he, that, that summer, well, so I I, I get the music. He called a few weeks later, and he said something like, uh, "I wish I still on some hard drive somewhere. I have captured like it was an I had an answering machine at the time, mm-hmm. so I like at some somehow got a microphone and recorded, you know, the actual answering machine <laughs> message, which was you know I'm saying like you know like a or Corleone and uh, listen to your music and I think you have a really strong lyrical sense because at the time all my music was short, I, short and like uh, slow, like mm-hmm. slow, pretty. I wrote primarily really pretty stuff. It sounded like a ripoff of Samuel Barber. Um, So it was all, you know, like the Adagio for strings, but not nearly as good. Like that's what all my music sounded like. And I had a couple pieces that were fast and rhythmic, but most of the stuff was like slow and pretty. And um, it's like, oh, you have a really strong lyrical sense. And, you know, the pieces that you have that are faster, you know, like really, I think you have a good rhythmic drive to your music, but you just write way too many ostinatos. Like (laughs) there are just every piece has got an ostinato in it. And then the next piece has another ostinato. Like, <laughs> I I don't know. Like if you can work on the ostinato thing, uh, we can talk about whether maybe you could study here. But right. uh anyway, talk to later. And so I'm like, oh uh well shoot. Um uh so I spent that summer writing music that had no ostinato in it and it was terrible. Like the, I, I didn't write anything good. <laughs> But I was really trying to write something that like, did what he was asking for. Yeah. And it sent, I sent it to him that summer, and a couple of weeks went by, and then he called and said, you know, I'm writing this piece that I'm really struggling with, the String Quartet for the Cleveland Quartet, and I'm really having a hard time when I'm writing a, a big piece. I can't listen to other composers' music. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I will listen to this as soon as I can, but I can't listen to it anytime mm-hmm. until this piece's done. And then in August, uh, I remember I was working at Pizza Delivery, because that was my fancy, my very shiny, three thirty-five an hour day job yeah, uh, during yeah. the, that summer was Pizza Hut delivery, and um, I came home and there was a message from him and I called it back and he said he had listened to the stuff I'd sent him and uh, I, he said you know, things that were good and which was really not much. Uh, I said, but I see that you're really trying very hard to like kick the ostinato addiction thing. <laughs> so. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, you know, it's really admirable you're working on that so hard. And uh, mm-hmm. if you'd like to study with me at Juilliard next year, we can do that. And I was like, holy, holy. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> um, yeah. And that was, so it was August, right before I started my senior year of college. Wow. Um, so, like, you know, you get senioritis anyway. But if you get if like, you if you know before you here. even start your senior year yeah. that you are like so out of there yeah. and you're like going to like what you think is the best music school in the country, if not way beyond the country, yeah. and you're studying in the most elite composition department, like in the studio that is yeah. the most in demand studio in the world, and you got in. I sure that I was insufferable that whole year <laughs> of CIM like I and I wrote almost nothing like I yeah, at CIM you have to give a junior recital and a senior recital which makes no sense if you're a composer because you have 3 years to write for one concert and you have like yeah. one year less than one year to write for the next recital. So everything I wrote was terrible um and I didn't care. And I like you know, went to the audition at Juilliard but I was already in. So that's mm-hmm. weird to like go to an audition yeah. and like not act like You know, oh, you, you silly. Why are you even bothering my friend? Like, so so I don't think I did that, but it's like a weird, it was, it was a weird thing to be at an, at an audition that you already won while there are all these people there who, you know,
1: think they have a shot,
2: think they have a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, like, oh, he did tell me the theory test did matter because you have to take this incredibly complicated theory test at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. And ear training test. And so I did okay on the theory test un- enough to get in. But um, that would have been the only thing that could have at that point stopped it. They do a pre-screening though. Um, <laughs> and he called them and told them not to pre-screen me. So the like what, some, one thing I don't know is if what would have happened. Like I have, oh I really goodness. have no idea. If I had legitimately auditioned if I legitimately auditioned, I don't think – well, I know I wouldn't have gotten into his studio. What I don't know is if I would have even gotten into the school because everyone <laughs> who ended up in his studio it seemed like were people that you – know, Steve Bryant studied with him because Steve met him when Steve, when Corleano had a gig at University of North Texas. And mm-hmm. Corleano thought that Steve Bryant's music was really good, and so he asked mm-hmm. him to come study with him. You know, He asked me to study with him a year in advance. Uh, yeah. Eric Whitaker studied with him when I was there too, but Eric transferred from another studio because Eric started mm-hmm. – he did start his master's in a different studio with with David diamond and they did not get along. And, uh, someone left, someone graduated from Corleone studio. And so Eric asked if he could take that slot and did. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, but that was, that was nuts. So who
3: knew? Yeah. It's, it, you know, know
2: what it all sounds like. now that I, uh, tell, <laughs> like, could I be like, so, you know, I, 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 there's a part of the story, the whole, this whole story right now is like, you know, Talk about like, oh, I was like, you know, we were super, super poor, like, you know, mm-hmm. welfare. But the rest of the story just sounds like super privileged white dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, like what crazy <laughs> level of like privileged white dude is that, that like just gets invited? Like, oh, you just you, asked her what you wanted. <laughs> like Yeah, but does that work if you're not a privileged white dude? If you don't like, yeah. yeah. And, and I know. also... I, I mean I was like as a privileged stalker white dude because I also I I, I talk about sending music <laughs> call, but I also like went been on arrested. vacation. Yeah. For sure, I went on vacation to Key West Florida with my friends that summer and I, I sent Corleano postcards from the beach of uh, <laughs> I was in Key West. <laughs> I swear to God, I wrote in postcards that were like, you know, dear Mr. Corleano, I'm uh, sitting on the beach in Key West and I'm <laughs> listening to your brilliant clarinet concerto and
3: oh, wow. having
2: just the best, the best, su- seriously, I oh, really man. did all that, but it was like sincere. I mean, yeah. I wasn't yeah. totally, like, it wasn't like I was, it wasn't something like, pre- like I really want to study with him, but mm-hmm. I also worship him. So <laughs> it was, you know, like if I'm telling him, oh, I I hadn't heard this, I hadn't noticed this thing that you do in this movement about you. And I'm writing this on like some postcard that's got a picture of like someone blowing into a conch shell on the the pier of Key West. Like,
3: it's
2: it's so weird. I hope he kept that because like, it's, it's really weird and creepy.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I have to ask then, um, not having any direct, you know, band experience yourself, not playing a band instrument, you know, the typical kind of composer who writes for the kinds of ensembles that they were playing in, that's not the case for you. So how did you find your way to writing for a band?
3: Uh,
2: that was entirely because of Eric Whitaker, 100%. Like without, without Eric having been in Corleano's studio at the same time I was, mm-hmm. I would not be writing for a band right now. Um, I really don't know what I would be doing because I wasn't making any money writing the other stuff. And I was writing a lot of music, so like um, I mean, I wrote mostly for like for dance companies and mm. um, you know choreographers that I met when I was at Juilliard, and I loved that. But there, were, you couldn't make a living doing that; it was just not possible. And I had gotten a couple orchestra commissions. Um, I got one from an orchestra that doesn't exist anymore called the Brooklyn Philharmonic, that was in Brooklyn, and um, I wrote a piece for them called Redline Tango when I was, I think, twenty nine. I think. Um, uh, anyway, so Whitaker at this point had been writing all his band music, like, you know, superstar in band. And when he was a jeweler, he'd written Ghost Train and play his Ghost Train. We're like, wow, that's really cool. And he's like, you should all write band music. And I'm like, I don't want to write band music. I'm going to write orchestra music and I'm going to write music for ballet companies and stuff because that's way more fun. So uh I did my own thing. um You know, I was living in on the Upper West Side and had my temp jobs that I did like all day, every day. You know, I would work, you know, eight or nine hours a day temping and then come home at night and write music. And make no money from it, but I was super happy writing this up and thought, Oh, someday I'll get discovered. And, uh, because again, I'm a privileged white dude, privileged white (laughs) dudes always get discovered. I figured, so like, I'm sure it's going to work out. Um, but nobody was ever like nothing. I, with the red line tangle orchestra thing, I couldn't get anyone else to play it. Like Mm -hmm. no one was interested in that piece after the premiere. Um, and around the same time, uh, So that you know, I mentioned the studio at Juilliard was me and Eric Whitaker and Stephen Bryant and Jonathan Newman. So everybody, the other three all have band music and they went to the Midwest clinic in Chicago and come back. And, uh, you know, Jonathan Newman has been one of my best friends. since like my first week at Juilliard and we're talking and he's like, Oh my God, you should see what happens with Eric Whitaker at a band conference. I'm like, what, (laughs) what, I understand what, what happens with Eric at a band conference. He's a rock star. It's insane. And I was like. So tell me about this band thing. Like, how's that work? <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I mentioned I was doing also work with youth orchestras. One of them was the Greater Twin Cities Youth Symphonies in Minneapolis. That same year, so I was spending four weeks of the concert season in Minneapolis working with the youth orchestra. Four weeks over the course, like one week at a time. And one of the weeks I was there with the youth orchestra. I'd get there on Sunday and the prior 4 days was a CBDNA National Convention Perfect. in Minneapolis that same year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the biggest the college band director convention for like that was happening in Minneapolis up until the day I had to be there for the youth orchestra gig. So, like, well, I guess I'll just go to that thing. Like I guess yeah. I'll go and I don't know anything about band or anyone in band. I'll go to the the convention, I'll hear some live bands and hear what people are playing in band music and I'll take CDs and hand them out and whatever and see what happens. And, um, and so that was what I did. And I took a stack of CDs and, uh, handed them out. And the next week, someone, uh, of uh, Scott Stewart, who at the time was director of bands at Emory, uh, in Atlanta called me and it's like, I like this red line tango piece. That should be a band piece. And, uh, I initially pushed back on it a little bit cause I thought it was too complicated. Cause I didn't know, mm-hmm. like, I didn't know that bands could play in mixed meters and you know, uh, not totally tonal and, um, tons of percussion and everything. So I didn't know if that would work. And, mm-hmm. uh, he told me like, yeah, you need it. This should be the piece. And I'm like, I can write a new piece. And it's <laughs> like, no, I think this, this should be, this should be your first band piece. Cause no one, no one sounds like this. He said, yeah. we don't, we don't have any piece that sounds like Redline tango and we, we should. So if you do that, you will have a unique piece that we need in the repertoire. Um, and I'm so glad he did that because if I had written something, I think I would have written crap. I think I would have written <laughs> what I thought band music was yeah. because I didn't think it was that I didn't think it was what I really sounded like. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, some simplified version, um, that it had to like, you know, be, if it could change, if it changed meter sometimes it could, but you wouldn't do, you know, complex, you know, seven eight five eight five sixteen you yeah. would never, you know, um, and I'm I'm just glad that I, you know, did it that way, that, that yeah. Scott Stewart insisted that I do it that way and not write my idea of it. Right. Yeah. Um, because again, I didn't know band music, even having gone to that convention, which was amazing. And I heard some amazing pieces and played really, really well. So I left that thinking, oh, I could, this is a medium that they can, they can really play. Mm-hmm. But I didn't leave that convention hearing stuff that sounded like me, which is good. But, you know, I didn't hear like super aggressive, mixed meter, fast, you know, like, you know, little like Napoleonic composer writing, you know, like music that's trying too hard to sound big. Like I didn't hear anyone else doing that. So, uh,
1: I, yeah,
2: but I don't think I would have done that if I had just been left to my own devices on that.
1: Right. Mm. Well, we're glad that it happened the way it did. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) too. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome.
0: One thing that, that Kate and I both kind of discussed is you're a very well documented human. And rather than <laughs> <laughs> rather than talking about wow. your creative process in general, um, <laughs> we, w- I, I want to talk about um, fear because it's something that I've seen you write and mention a couple of times uh, in your blog or maybe it's in program notes for pieces. So I was wondering if you could uh, talk about how tackling you know one of your fears, um, be it the, the clarinet concerto or, or anything else, how does that kind of impact your growth as an artist? Or why would you even want to do it as a composer?
3: Oh,
2: that's a great question. Um, yeah, that's a really, really good question. Uh, I, I mean, I, did, it was not something that I would have – well, it's not something I did until a couple of years ago, I mm-hmm. think, is the short answer. Um, the reasoning behind that, I think, partially is that uh, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to. Like if I was afraid of doing something, yeah. I didn't need to do it. You know, I could <laughs> right. write just another piece <laughs> that didn't that just didn't deal with the thing that was scary. But, you know, um, and uh, I think the, the first one that went away from that was a piece called The Frozen Cathedral that I was I, I always I just always turned down in memoriam pieces because, mm-hmm. you know, I if I didn't know the person, I don't think it's fair to anyone that someone tried to write a piece about a person they didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I would always just turn those down. And I mean, I, I actually accepted one and I returned the money. I don't remember if there's been another time that I've taken a retainer. And then once the project started going, I was like, no, I can't, this isn't right. And it was something where a teacher had died and the band, you know, wanted to commission a piece for the band director. Who had died and they sent me all these things that she had written and it just felt so personal and real and i was Mm -hmm. like that's not i can't do it um and so yeah with frozen cathedral that was written for uh someone who asked me to write something for his son uh john locke at uh, uncg uh asked me to write a piece for his son who had died 10 years before and i initially said no because, again, I was like, oh, I love that man. He's been so good to me and he's mm-hmm. so kind. And, uh, you know, I obviously didn't know his son, but, you know, I can't. I would let him down if I wrote him a piece. I would let him down. I would let his whole family would be at the concert and they'd be like, that's not what he sounded like or whatever. Like, I just went through all these things about people, you know, feeling offended almost by the what they ended up receiving as the piece. And, uh but he kept pushing. He really, really wanted the piece, and I was like, B- "I'm not, you know, I'm not the asphalt cocktail guy. I'm not <laughs> the guy that writes the this thing." And uh, he's like, "I think you you could do this." Um, and so I d- went through the process, which is the process with every piece, um, where I went out to dinner with my wife Abby, and we you know had a lot to drink and just <laughs> talked about you know what we could do. And she was the one, you know, she's like, I think you should, I think you should do this. Um, and she's like, and with, with the ones that are hard like that, cause I'm scared of, she's like, I'll help you do it. Um, That's awesome. and you know, so she's like, I think what we need to do is figure out a way you can write a piece about him that is about his experience without feeling like it has to be about him and mm. his experience, yeah. make it about something that he loved and why people love this thing that he loved and make it about, you know, and she was like, you know, he, he loved, I, don't, I mean, I'm not given get, into, get into specific of what happened with that piece and what she suggested. But at that dinner, she was like, I don't call it the frozen cathedral. And I was like, oh my God, I, that's an amazing title. <laughs> yeah. I know what that piece sounds like too. Yeah. Yeah. I may be drunk right now, but I know what it sounds like, you know? So, and, you know, then, you know, uh, then over the next couple of weeks figured out how to write that piece because she was like, I think you should do it. And I'll help you get past the fear of it. The, you know, the hardest one, of course, um, was a piece called Places We Can No Longer Go that I wrote about my mother who, um, you know, af- not I don't know how many years ago it would have been, but uh, I don't know, eight years ago, 10 years ago or so, mm-hmm. um, you know, she she ended up getting dementia. We the, they think it was a uh, wet brain from alcoholism, from like mm-hmm. so much alcohol mm-hmm. abuse. Right. Um, and it was the kind of thing we didn't even notice it coming on my sister and I, because right. she, you know, if you're drunk all the time, your short-term memory is garbage. And so it was not, usually it would seem like, well, if she's saying the same thing twice in two minutes, that's, she's just drunk. And I would just mm-hmm. get upset, but it turned out that that was not the case. In fact, you know, she was mm-hmm. losing, you know, her, all of her mental faculties and I wrote a Facebook post about it. And because she was a musician and I could still play her a piece that she had played, like I put on Scheherazade and she would sing along with the flute part because she had played the flute part in community orchestra of Scheherazade and she would sing the flute part. And But she couldn't really have a normal conversation beyond that. And so I put a Facebook post about how important music is and everything. And uh, Gary Hill at Arizona State saw that and was like, you should write a piece about this. I was like, oh no way. That's terrible. That's a terrible idea. No, one, I don't want to write that. You don't want to hear that. No one wants to hear that piece. That sounds miserable. And, uh, you know, and I tell this to Abby and Uh, kind of like kind of laughing like, how silly is he to even think that there could be a piece about that? And I would write such a thing. (laughs) And she was like, I think you're just afraid to write it. Like you're you're scared to write it. And that's why you should write it. You should write it because you think it's a scary idea. You don't want to avoid it because it's a bad idea. You want to avoid it because it's a scary idea. And that means you'll write something really good. And she's like, and I will help you. We will like, we will, uh, you know, I'll write text for it that, you know, Mm -hmm. that will be. Uh, you know, the text will be memories that your mother wishes she could still share with yeah. you. And, uh, and I'll, write, so I'll write the poetry and I will help you think about the structure as if you use the structure as your emotional armor, you will be able to write the piece. Mm-hmm. Because I remember this one time uh, when I, the first gig I had at the University of Michigan, really, really early in the band stuff, they were doing Red Line Tango, but they were also doing something of Michael Colgrass. So I had Colegrass there and they had me. Do you think anybody talked to me? No. <laughs> I was kind of like, why am I even here? Aww. And so like there were, you know, there was this, but there was this amazing seminar. I did not give a seminar, but Michael Colegrass, of, of course gave the seminar and it was great. And mm-hmm. someone asked him about writing really personal music like that. And uh, he said, you can't, he said, if a friend dies, I can't just go to the piano and start to write a piece about it because what I'll do is I'll just be emoting on the page and that is not how you make art you need structure you need structure behind it so what i will do is i will first figure out how to structure it so that at least that has technique and if you come at it with technique first and then you can put the emotion with the technique then you can get make a great piece and yeah. that really resonated with me um yeah. and so i was like i will help you with the structure because that will be your emotional armor that will allow you to write the piece yeah. and i'm really glad i wrote that piece it's not a piece i enjoy hearing of course, but I don't know that the audience enjoys hearing it. I don't think you hear it and you're like, well, that was fun. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think people are grateful in a way that it exists, but it's not the same as, you know, I think frozen cathedral because of the way it's paced and structured pe- that ends and people are like, "Woo!" because it ends with a great, big, you know, as loud as possible play mm-hmm. Um And it goes on a big journey to get there, but the way the ending happens, it feels like, Oh, that was great. Yay. Um, But the ending of places we can no longer go is not, you know, that kind of an ending um, because it couldn't be with that kind of a piece. So, um, yeah, it's I and then you mentioned clarinet concerto that I'm scared of just because I'm afraid of. There are so many great clarinet concertos, including um, the Corleano is why I wanted to study with him. So the thought of writing a clarinet concerto. With his in existence is kind of like why it's it reminds me of when I was an undergrad and donald erb my teacher there would say like you know the one of the you shouldn't write a string quartet until you are really really good because <laughs> yeah you know, you're going to be up against the beethoven quartets and the bartok quartets and whatever so just fyi you write a quartet you know that's there's some really great stuff out there for string quartet and that's why i feel about clarinet concertos so uh so it's scary but it's more you know
0: Yeah,
3: it's
2: not scary because it's such like I'm like it's not because I'm opening my soul to the audience like it is for the other pieces. Well,
0: it's it's so crazy to think like this path of this career of being an artist, and I'm not I'm not someone who's like you need to experience real pain before you create great art, but (laughs) but like um, the. This is going to seem like it's totally random, but um, Twitter is a very dark place sometimes. But there's a mm-hmm, number mm-hmm. of people I follow on Twitter that um, I enjoy so much, and one of them's you. Uh, the other one is uh, <laughs> Cynthia Johnson Turner. And um, yeah. oh yeah, re- yeah, recently there was a um, you know one of these generic things like, what was the last um, most impactful piece or performance that you've heard? And it's just a generic question, and, and she had answered it. And it was it was uh, it was places we can no longer go. And there, it, it was I saw just that. Yeah. so crazy to see how many other people were like, "Yeah, I was at that performance. I was at that performance." And it was just so to think about as as horrible as it is. And we talked about this with Jason Nam as well. Like this, <laughs> it's hard to say. Like how you know crappy things are. They they help the human condition, but. I'm just grateful for, for, for your willingness to, to kind of dive into that fear. And, and so everyone else can kind of also maybe address their fears on that topic or maybe on something else. It's, it's a really powerful thing.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, I, it was, I, like I said, I did not want to do it. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I went through the emails recently and it was months of just ignoring Gary Hill and he would keep asking <laughs> and I would just keep ignoring it Cause I was like, <sighs> I don't quite want to tell him no, but I don't want to do it. Um, right. and, uh, so I, yeah, I'm glad I did it, but also it was as miserable of an experience mm-hmm. as I anticipated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and like, I literally went into therapy while writing that piece, like, because, you know, because it, you know, right. piece like, that's a specific thing about that, about, you know, your mother and, uh, And then you just start thinking about all of the things, like all the issues. Because if you were a piece about any family member, I would think you're going to be like, oh, remember (laughs) when they did that? And so there's like all of this baggage for my whole life that by the time we're writing the piece, she's so deep into dementia. I can't have a conversation with her. I can't be like, why did you do this? Or why did this happen? Or, you know, like there was, you know, it was, there was, there was no resolution for it. So Mm -hmm. I was just, it was. I get an incredibly dark, like depression writing that piece that ugh, uh and that's and so, like yeah, you know, the next thing I wrote was uh, a piece called Sacred Spaces, which is just like I'm just gonna write F major, just give me some F major <laughs> and happening. fanfares and like a big triad, and like oh thank God. <laughs> you know, wow. I just write circus marches, circus marches forever. <laughs> like that's all I wanna do now. Cause yeah, those pieces are that those pieces are rough. Yeah.
1: yeah. You need to give yourself a break.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: My next one of my next big projects is also a clarinet concerto, and <gasps> no. Yeah, and uh, we can <laughs> we can talk more about it sometime. It's also like I I am terrified because I'm a clarinetist, and oh, so it's like a totally different perspective. It's but but along the same lines, like there are so many good ones that exist that, that I'm like, how can I possibly even add <laughs> to
2: that? Yeah. No. Good luck. When is yours happening? Thanks.
1: Well, it's sort of TBD because uh, of things being postponed and all of that, but I'm, I'm going to be writing it this summer and delivering it in the fall. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> is, that yep.
2: is that the largest piece you will have done probably?
1: Yes. Um, depending on how long it ends up being. Um, I have never written a concerto at all. So it's very exciting and terrifying. But like you said, like a lot of what you said resonated so much with me just because, you know, facing, facing your fears in that way. Like if you're not a little bit scared, it's probably not going to be that good in in a sense. Right. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. If you're like, eh, I got this. Then I don't think you're going to do anything cool. You're you not going to push
1: yourself. You're right. not going to. Yeah, exactly. So it's always a good reminder to hear somebody else talk about that. Um, And also a good reminder of how important support can be in in Mm. the life of an artist. Um, Hearing you talk about Abby's support in uh, helping you, you know, write those really difficult pieces and having the support of a therapist to dig deep into some of the emotional territory as well uh, is also a really good reminder. So thanks for sharing that.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and those are things that, I mean, yeah, I, you know, like the people who have had to, you know, live through all the lockdown, you know, Alone, I just oh, cannot yeah. even begin to imagine how hard that has been for mental health. Absolutely, um, mm-hmm. you know, just would be just devastating. You know, we're yeah. fortunate because when I'm not traveling, this is exactly what our life is. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, exactly. I work, at, I work at home, and she, you know, kind of goes back and forth between working at home or working, you know, at some academic institution. But it's not like she's ever gone all day every day. You know, yeah. so, yeah. Um, so we we came out pretty well on this. You know, at least yeah. as far as the companionship part is but wow it's yeah it'd be so hard for so many people
1: yeah Yeah. for sure um okay so one thing that i'm really excited to talk to you about uh is the midwest clinic and (laughs) i want to share with our listeners uh for anybody who doesn't already know about this story that um one of the reasons that I think my music has started to well started to take off a few years ago was actually due to the generosity of John Mackey. And so, John, you uh, have for several years have donated an exhibit booth at the Midwest Clinic to provide an opportunity for uh, composers from underrepresented groups. And I was one of those composers a few years ago. And I actually did just for fun. I looked up. Uh, all of the people who have who have been at <laughs> the booth uh, over the past few years, and I just wanted to kind of track like what are they all doing now? And it's, it's incredible to see, you know, that just a simple act, well, not simple, but one act of of generosity, providing an opportunity for composers to uh, present their music and to have a a place for people to find them and come and meet them. uh, You know, how much of an impact that has had on so many people's careers, you know, from that point onward. So thank you you know, from myself, but on behalf of all of those other wonderful composers who are doing awesome things now too. Uh, I
2: appreciate that. I just got a message from Henry mm-hmm. Dorn, who has been at my booth. <laughs> and I think he's, uh, at, I see the word Midwest in the, in the message. Nice. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, it, that is, yeah, I, I'm really, really proud of the Midwest booth thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, were you the first
1: year? It was the second year. So the first year was was, uh, actually my first year going to Midwest.
2: That's right. Yeah. Cause and I remember so I us talking at the there. bar yeah. and yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And you said, Hey, you should have been part of this booth, you know, yeah. I'll do it again next year. And, and so we followed through with that, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and why that kind of work is important <laughs> to you.
2: Uh, do you know the story? I, I, know, do. Have you heard...
1: okay. I do, but I want okay. everyone
2: else. To. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, um, uh, what happened is that time I guess it was four years ago. I don't remember. Well, I've I've had the booth three years. I missed the third year, and last year would have been the fourth year, mm-hmm. and it didn't happen. So, I guess going on five years ago, because I am doing the booth again this this winter. Um, yeah. So whatever that was, four five years ago. Uh, so if you're self published, uh, like I am, I, I own all the copyrights and everything. Um, I am my own publisher. So, um, Midwest was. Founded largely by publishers as a you know uh, a trade show for band music that they publish, so the rules are set up in a way that is very geared toward the sale of band music, um, which is great. That's totally there. That's fine, but that means that like the bands that play at Midwest. For those who don't know, um, there are programming rules uh, that are very strict. Where uh, if you're a high school band. I think it's for like every grade four five six you have to play a grade one two three
3: yeah
2: something like that um you know so you can't come in with your super impressive Texas high school band and play all grade six pieces you can't play all top end pieces if you play you know uh a piece of you know uh if you play that Come Sunday by Omar Thomas which is probably like a grade five you now you have to play a grade one or two also um so that's that's totally fine that's but that's, that's there's that weird thing about how the programming is done but also it means that it if you have a piece played you have one piece played i think you have to buy an ad in the program the midwest program and the ad is like 900 dollars. Yeah. Wow. and for that that means that you uh because if you're published your publisher bought the ad like if you're with you know I don't know boozing Hawks or whatever. Uh, they bought an ad, and now every composer that they publish is el- eligible to have a piece plate because mm-hmm. not per composer, it's per publisher. So I'm my own publisher, so if I have a piece plate, I have to buy an ad in the Midwest program. Um, and uh, that's fine. and that used to be just the deal. Like I could have as many pieces as I wanted, and I just had to buy the ad. But they made it so that if you, you could have two pieces with a Midwest with an ad, um, and that was fine. If you had a third piece. Now you have to have an exhibit booth. Mm-hmm. You have to buy a booth, um, and they're not cheap. so the ads nine hundred dollars or whatever. The booth was a little over a thousand dollars. So that's not you know that in itself is not that big of a deal. But the problem is that it's that you don't just it's not just a thousand dollars for the booth. You also have to rent the carpeting, yeah. and you have to rent furniture? a table I and all that. the furniture. Any yeah. seating has to be rented. Um, And there's a company that will do all that for you. You can like rent the base package. It's like got a tablecloth and all this stuff. And you get it for the duration of the convention and it's another thousand dollars. So you're $2,000 in and you've got this booth and, uh, but you have to work the booth too, because you can't have a booth and have it empty. And I'm like, I'm not sitting around some booth at Midwest all day. That sounds (laughs) miserable. So anyway, so I get the email that like, Oh, you have too many pieces being played this year. Cause that year I had three pieces or four, I think it was three or four. And so like, well, now you have to have a booth and I'm super pissed. And so Abby and I go to dinner <laughs> and we're sitting at the bar at this restaurant where we always have dinner at this bar around the corner from us. And uh, it's, it wasn't a bar. It was a restaurant. Well, we'd sit at the bar at the restaurant um, and we would sit there and I, we were you know drinking and I was complaining and I'm like, <laughs> I have to get a booth. At the Midwest Clinic. This is, can you believe this garbage? Like, screw them. Like, I, uh, I'm i not going to work some dumb booth. And like, the whole reason I'm going is to not be at a booth. I got to go to my concert, some rehearsals, and like mingle or whatever. I don't
3: know. You know
2: what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a garbage can. And I'm going to just like uh, fill it with paper and set fire to it and put it in the <laughs> middle of the, the cement floor. And that's going to be my exhibit and uh-huh. she's like well that doesn't really sound very productive um and uh so then uh, she says um, maybe there's a way you could you know do this and it would be uh, a good thing yeah you know, so I'm like this is this is garbage i'm not you know i'm not going to uh, maybe All all right maybe not a fire i probably can't actually set fire to anything <laughs> in <not>. the exhibit space <laughs> but maybe i'll just get like a big yellow notepad and i'll write in sharpie like go ask the board of the midwest clinic why this space is empty
3: and i'll just leave that
2: in the middle of the floor And I'll leave in a huff and that'll be it. And I'm like, that'll show them. And she's like, I don't know if this is any of these are good ideas. Uh, She said, if someone gives you something that you don't need, why don't you give it to someone who needs it? And uh, I'm like, well, yeah, sure. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) And she's like, well, if you're going to have the booth and you can't, you're not going to work the booth, obviously, like you don't want to be, you know. Spend all day every day at the booth or whatever, and uh, but don't just leave it empty. Why don't you give it to composers who need it, who can't necessarily afford it otherwise, or yeah. maybe they wouldn't have the opportunity to like show their music because they don't have a distributor yet or whatever. And uh, you know, like, why don't you just give it to underrepresented composers? Mm-hmm. I was like, well, okay, that's a great idea. <laughs> so, uh, so it was entirely her idea. She was the that's one who awesome. said, like, I'm like, you know, screw them, and she's like, no. this is a chance to do a good thing for people and uh, you know, no extra cost to you Mm -hmm. and people could really benefit like composers. This will allow composers to come to Midwest and not just come and be just like, try to figure out where to go. They'll have a place where they can like be at the booth with other composers that, you know, people don't know yet and people walk by and they'll stop because they'll see your name on the booth and they'll be like, what is this? And then they will get to show their music to conductors that, they wouldn't get to show it to otherwise. So yeah, the list of people who have done it has just been you know, amazing, you know? Uh,
3: yeah.
2: and, uh, so I'm really, really proud of it. I think this year I don't, so here's a good problem to have. I don't know if there are enough composers that haven't exhibited that are eligible, uh, to fill the booth times hmm. necessarily at this point. Right. Um, so if that actually is the case, I will end up taking shifts as well, um, yeah. and you know, so like, basic turn the majority of the booth over to as many people as are interested in exhibiting, and then you know, also work some uh, shifts myself. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, cool. yeah, I love. I I'm really, really. I love the booth thing. That makes me really happy that you know I was going to just burn it down, and I was like, don't burn <laughs> it down. Do something actually useful for a change. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. <laughs>
1: It made a huge impact. I mean, I was in, in preparation for this conversation, I was thinking a lot about it and and reflecting on how many, you know, commissions and and contacts that I made that I'm still in contact with people that I'm collaborating with in a variety of ways now that our initial point of contact was through that booth. And I mean, maybe, maybe our paths would have crossed at some point anyway. Um, but it definitely accelerated things at least for me. So it's, it's awesome really.
2: I remember, uh, talking to one conductor who's like a, at a big university and uh, Omar Thomas was at mm-hmm. the booth at, at mm-hmm. this point. And I think Omar was the first year. He he, I mean, we've been so sounds close It sounds super weird were... that I know
1: that, but it's only no. I mean, I, like, I should know that. About... <laughs> I
2: would, I would <laughs> think he was the first year because he was, we've yeah. been so close. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, you know, Omar was at the booth and, you know, Omar is, uh, you know, we all used to live in, you know, the same area outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. And that was how I met him. And, uh, uh, Abby used to refer to Omar as the most beautiful man in Cambridge. And I'm like, <laughs> I live here too. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, Omar is just so striking and, uh, and, you know, dresses incredibly. And like, I, so I, I remember talking to some, you know, big college conductor later that day and, and I was like, yeah, I met Omar Thomas at your boot today. And I was walking by and I saw this guy and I'm like. I don't know what he's selling, but I want it. <laughs> you, just, you just, that's how the kind of like power and charisma that yeah. Omar has just mm-hmm. as a, you know, person, he's so you know warm and just glows this kindness. And like, uh, you know, so I think, you know, we scored in having that. I mean, the people that have worked the booth, you know, that they exhibited, I think it's been really incredibly lucky that everyone who has done that has been interested in doing it. And mm-hmm. so many now, you know, really are still doing it you know, and yeah. a lot, uh, you know, exhibit through other, you know, booths now. And so still have an opportunity to show their music and, you know, people want to come back because they didn't have uh, another space, like I would certainly yeah. invite people back again. Like, um, yeah. I, I like,
3: I like the booth. Yeah. Having.
1: That's awesome. Well, and it's funny cause you've mentioned throughout this conversation being a privileged white dude. Uh, and this is certainly one way to, to give back, to offset that in some way. This is, you're setting a great example for how like people who, who the system benefits um, are able to actually create opportunities for other people. So that's worth mentioning. Thank you. Yeah. I
2: mean, that is definitely like a conscious thing to, yeah. you know, to try to, to do. Cause yeah, I, you know, Abby often points out that like, I'm, I'm, I, I no longer have anything to lose, you know, like, <laughs> Like if I say something is wrong in the way things are happening, uh, even if people are offended, I'll still be able to pay our mortgage probably, you know, like it mm-hmm. would, uh, if I'm on the right side of things and I say, this is the right side of things, you know, like, um, or try to just, you know, make change happen in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it, it doesn't. It only helps other people, hopefully. Yeah, um,
1: yeah exactly. And,
0: well, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, what kind of horrible world would this be without Abby? That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <You> know,
1: <laughs> oh my I,
0: gosh. know <laughs> I know, I know, I mm.
1: know. No, it's, yeah, Garbage yeah. cans would be on fire. Yeah, garbage you know. cans right?
0: on
2: fire. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, I would not be... have, I, I would just have written the same piece over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Uh, yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know, I don't know that I would have, you know found a therapist, I don't know that I, you know, whatever, and that therapist, uh, my most recent therapist, since we moved here to San Francisco, is the person who thought that I had ADHD and getting diagnosed with that, even as old as I am, like completely has changed my life too. Um, And as a result, like changed like our lives here, you know, like, because I'm a much, much better person to be around now. So, you know, that's, God bless Abby for sticking around when I was not yet like medicated, but good Lord.
0: This perfectly leads into the, one of our questions, which is you've been quite open on social media about your ongoing commitment to your, your own physical and and mental health. And we were hoping that you could maybe share some perspective on, on how prioritizing taking care of yourself has uh, impacted your work and, and your life.
2: Um, I know, I don't even know if it's about prioritizing it. So i've always been super physically active um, mm-hmm. just because i'm super super high strung you know <laughs> so like i have a ton of energy all the time and uh if i don't like exercise pretty regularly you know, with, with like cardio i get really cranky i'm told by certain people <laughs> that i live with so uh there would there have been times where i'll be like writing and you know stressed about the piece and Abby will be like, maybe you could go for a run tonight or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Her, yeah. A very a nice way, way of Gentle being suggestion. like, you're yeah. being, <laughs> a, you're being a jerk, but if you went <laughs> for a run, you might be nice again. Like that's <laughs> her nice, her way of, yeah. of doing that. Um, and uh, so yeah, the, the, that I generally with not much, you know, encouragement, I do just try to be active just so I feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the, yeah, the mental health stuff was not something that I really dealt with too much. I think until COVID really. Mm -hmm. um, because I got again, really depressed once COVID hit and Mm -hmm. everything got canceled and all the commissions got postponed and all the travel got canceled and all the money stopped coming. Like, you know, no one was buying music. No one was renting music. No one was paying me for gigs. It was like, Oh my God. And so like that, the money thing was a concern, but the bigger thing was that I, uh, and my therapist and I are working on this right now is that I am, uh, I in not necessarily a healthy way, need, uh, the adoration of others. Like Mm. I need to feel like people love what I do. Uh, and without performances, I don't get it. So if my travel stops, uh, and no one's ordering the music. Are they not ordering the music because I'm not good anymore and they don't think my yeah. music is good. So they've stopped ordering it. Uh, if there's no performance, no one's clapping for me to like show me that they like what I did. So like this, like big source of, uh, you know, you know th- this like affirmation of, you know, my existence, was well, it stopped, mm-hmm. um, you know, last March or whatever. And, And also like as a composer, like if you write music the I don't write music for me, like I write music to communicate with people. Um, And it's not necessarily so that uh, you hear it and you're like, you're so good, but there's definitely for sure, you know, uh, there's a need to feel like I did a good job
3: uh,
2: and people liked it. And, you know, without that, I was like, it's in a really dark spiral and felt like, why am I writing music anymore? I'm a composer. That's my whole identity is I'm a composer, but if I'm not writing music, I'm not a composer anymore. So now I'm nobody. Like, Who am I? I'm nothing. I, if I'm not, if I ha- no longer have my identity as a composer because I don't have a concert,
3: mm-hmm.
2: then I'm, I don't know what I am. And I just like spiraled, spiraled. worse and worse yeah. and worse. Um, and, uh, it's like, I need to get a new therapist because I hadn't had one here since we we'd moved so that was last march we had moved here september prior um and so i found someone uh and the first person i called uh and we did like a you know 20 minute like get to know you thing and like 15 minutes in she's like have you ever been diagnosed with adhd and i was like no i said funny thing my prior therapist was like i think you might have adhd <laughs> and uh we talked about it for like a minute and then we changed the, the subject yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> like you do with ADHD yeah, is what exactly. happens. <laughs> yeah. Abby's like, that sounds like ADHD to me. So, um, uh, so she's like, yeah, I think, I think a lot of what you're struggling with is, uh, can be medicated mm-hmm. because what you're doing is you're constantly looking for this like hit of, mm-hmm. uh, dopamine mm-hmm. and, it makes you always looking for something shiny and satisfying to get it, yeah. whether it's applause or look how many people liked my Instagram post or, <laughs> uh, you know, this made people laughed at my whatever I'd said on Twitter or whatever. Like, uh, you're like always looking.
1: Validation.
2: Yes. You're always yeah. looking for validation to give you that hit. Um, and as a result, you are like, never just like settling down and like letting, things process. And, uh, so yes. Yeah, so then I, you know, she, she referred me to, so I was like, well, you're my therapist. Cause you sound, no one has ever put it like that before. Um, <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I think if, if you're Medicaid, your whole life could get better. And, uh, and she referred me to a psychiatrist and I was terrified of psychiatrists yeah. because all I knew about psychiatrists was my mom. My mom always, mm. uh, my whole life, she had a psychiatrist who was terrible and just, gave her, gave her more and more and more and more meds and nothing ever helped. And she was always depressed and would still medicate with alcohol. And so like, I never thought the psychiatrist was, that. I thought, I thought that's for like cuckoo people. It can't make you better. Mm-hmm. But my therapist was like, no, seriously, I think this is something that you could really help. It could benefit from. So I talked to you know someone here and went all these tests and everything. And he like had Abby fill out paperwork about me and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we, you know, started going through the process of like figuring out what the right medication was, which was also like a, a bit of a, you know, crap show. That's I don't know if you, could, if you can swear on this podcast, but like oh, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. the, the other kind of show is what it, <laughs> what it was. And um, it was really, re- really rough trying to find the right dose of the right medication. Mm-hmm. And I was worse for a while. Like I was completely, completely insult, like just, I was cruel to Abby mm. for for a couple of weeks while I was on, on the wrong medication, yeah. and somehow she was just like an angel about it and knew that that was not me. That was that was the, basically just bad drugs is what was happening right. and making me just like rage and like be just so hurtful because I felt like if I did that I would hurt less because the med mm. the wrong meds were actually making mm. me more depressed and angry and it was awful. But once I found the right thing, it was, you know, everything is better. Like I'm just, you know, I'm better to her. I can have a conversation with her and not like it used to be, I would have, we'd be sitting at lunch and she'd be talking and I would be listening to her and I would start to just think about something else. But now what happens is she'll be talking and I'll feel my brain start to think about something else and be like, we should be paying attention right now. And then I just do like, I can like make the switch, listen to her. And so that makes everything better here with communication. And that my mood is better. I'm not nearly as like, in need of the dopamine hits from like sources, like, you know, social media, not like yeah. I'm over that by any means. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to like, you know, <laughs> stop thinking about that stuff. But, um, and I was afraid it was going to mess up my writing and it didn't mess up my writing. What it does though, is it, I thought it would, so this is going to, I don't know how much, this is maybe too, way too much information. I thought that like <laughs> taking ADHD meds would be like taking, doing like a little line of cocaine every morning. I've never <laughs> taken cocaine. I I've never done cocaine. I will never, never do cocaine. first folks. Uh, <laughs> you're right. I saw so I've never, ever, and I will never try cocaine. Um. But I thought the way people have described it to me, I thought like, Oh, that little like rush of like, yeah. Like almost a little bit too much coffee or whatever. Like, oh, that's what that's kind of what these meds are going to feel like. And my therapist, is like, no, it's more like doing a tiny bit of meth. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: that's
2: better. That's much better.
3: She's like, Wonderful. She's yeah, like, yeah. She's <laughs> like,
2: actually, she's like, chemically, it's more like meth than cocaine. Mm. So yeah, you're just doing a tiny little, <laughs> a tiny little, like you know, whatever. However, one does meth, but um, and uh, and so what it does is, I remember seeing some documentary about someone on meth, and they would like take apart stereo equipment and then put it back together again like obsessively what i will do is i will spend all day on like making the midi of three measures sound better than you could ever ever need it to sound like it is ridiculous the amount of focus and attention i can give to the tiniest little nuance of stuff while i'm writing so the and the meds don't make me want to write i thought they would make me but want to be productive they don't they make it so if i start writing I can stay focused on writing, but they mm-hmm. don't make me feel like working. They just make me so I can work without like, you know, constantly then checking Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Um, and I think, I don't think my work has gotten less good. I've only written a couple of pieces since I've been, you know, taking medication, but uh, I think if anything, they're just more detailed uh, right. maybe than they need to be, but they're not. <laughs> I uh, Yeah. I was afraid like, Oh, you know, you listen to some piece and it feels like it kind of jumps all over the place. Maybe that's because I was not medicated and my brain was like, I need something to change to be, you know, more interesting. And will I stop feeling the need to like change things in dramatic ways in a certain time? And I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. It's tough to know because I haven't written a really big piece yet mm-hmm. while medicated, but even if that is the case, I think it's better. I think, you know, it's better that I'm not a crazy person anymore. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, Always well, it's just looking better that it. you
1: feel better, right? And if you feel yeah, exactly. better, you're going to do right. better work. And that's just going to compound over time. And I don't
2: mean to use the word crazy actually the way it sounds. Like I, you know, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like you just said. Like I feel better. And, you know, uh, and if I don't get crazy applause or something, mm-hmm. it's okay. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I think
1: Although that's Although for all. what it's worth, I'm sure with the return – to concerts, you will still get crazy applause.
2: Oh, I will. I will. And I will not (laughs) like it less. I, you know, not, but, uh, but yeah, it's, but I think it's not good if you start to get a, like it, I felt addicted to it. yeah. And so I think part of what I was enduring last March was withdrawal,
3: right?
2: like a withdrawal. And it really was withdrawal because it was a chemical withdrawal from the dopamine I was getting from that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so then my body was like, there's no dopamine. We are depressed as all hell now. Yeah. Uh so. Anyway, yeah.
1: So now well, I no longer think, sharing that with us. I no longer think
2: psychiatrists are bad. I think psychiatrists are great. Good. good. I mean, or can be. That's Not awesome. all of them are, obviously, but it is possible. So
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we are almost we're almost through here, but I want to just um, get into this very important segment that that Dylan and I have called composer cats. Um, because there are there are a number of composers. Uh, this seems to be a pretty common trend: composers that have cats. Um, I, of course, am one of them, and, and Dylan mm. has a cat who, coincidentally, is named Abby. So this is and, this is quite my life.
0: Quite entertaining. Wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: wow. I love yeah. I love a cat with a person name.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, we we when we adopt so we adopted the two cats we have now, and when we adopted them, they had people names that actually were terrible. It was so their names now are Noodle and Bloop. But their names were Debbie and Daniel, which (laughs) Debbie's especially bad. We were Mm. so we were realizing the other day, like I was like, Noodle, like Noodle just yells, like she talks all the time. And I'm like, she's so chatty. She's like a chatty Kathy. We should have named her Kathy, but still named Bloop Bloop. So if their names had been Bloop and Kathy, I think would be
1: (laughs) as siblings.
2: So weird. Anyway, but yes, we have cats. Yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, we just wanted to, to know if, if they help or hinder your creative process or if, you know, sometimes (laughs) we see photos on Instagram and stuff of, you know, one of the cats on the piano or something like that. Yeah. Do they hang out with you when you write?
2: Uh, Bloop does. Uh, It's unusual for Noodle to come. Noodle very much wants to be where Abby is. And Abby is Mm. in the, she works. uh, I'm, this room is basically the equivalent of a basement. I mean, it's, it's all. It's because we're on a hill at you know, San Francisco, so it's super steep hill. So right. this is the bottom level of the house, but uh, she's two floors above me, so she can't hear me when I'm working and stuff. Right. Um, but Noodle is almost always with her, and Bloob is often down here, but I don't – Oh, he is, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's over – he's in the chair back there Aww. behind me. Um, he sometimes will sit on my lap while I work. It's interesting. He's He's kind of indifferent about what I'm actually working on, I I got a standing desk recently. And so often I will now work standing up and he will yell at me because he doesn't have a lap. And so then I have to like (laughs) lower the desk and sit down so that Bloop can sit on my lap for a few minutes while I work. He's very, very sweet. Um, My prior cat, Loki, was not good when I would work. It was interesting. uh, You know, cats can really read your energy, I think, like so acutely. And uh, if I would be working, it would be okay if I had headphones on, but the, when I would play something for Abby, which is, I, I rarely let her, she doesn't get to hear it until it's like almost done, generally, because I'm super insecure that she'll hear it and be like, oh, you suck now, or whatever. <laughs> like This is what I think. With, so I write with headphones, even though she's two floors up, I write with headphones all day. Um, and uh, so the first time I would play her something, Loki would be on my lap and he would start biting me. Like because he could read the stress that I had right. while uh, you know I was playing like sharing something with her, mm-hmm. um, uh, but none of them ever helped my writing. They don't really mm-hmm. hurt it, other than Loki with the chewing on me while I would listen to it. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's. I think it, again, it's just good for like mental health to have a pet or Absolutely. pets. Yeah, the companionship.
1: Someone, is
2: nice. Yeah, companionship. Someone thing that, that just loves you unconditionally. You know, like,
0: yeah, uh, must be nice, guys. Because Abby does not love me unconditionally. <laughs> I
2: Just bet like, she does in her way.
0: Oh, you're you right. Know? You're right, John. You're right.
2: <laughs> like Noodle is not <laughs> snuggly with me, and I think Abby is upset because Noodle's not super snuggly with her, and also Bloop is not snuggly with snugly with her, and they both sleep on me, which <laughs> Loki slept in Abby's armpit all every night for like Aww. 14 years, like a like a teddy bear. <laughs> Yeah. next to her arm uh, for years. Uh, but these cats sleep on me and I don't want them to sleep on me. It's uncomfortable. Uh, I would totally trade, but, uh, yeah, no, I think they love us the, as best they can. Yeah. And Go. They would, you know, I'm sure Abby would be sad if you left
0: for yeah. a while. I'm yeah. also getting, I'm kind of getting confused now because we said, about which Abby. Abby we're talking about. Yeah. 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 Abby yeah. The but cat, that's okay.
1: Abby the human. <laughs> I think yeah. this is yeah.
0: a great addition to our, um, our composer cat cats. series. There's you, yes. there's Kate, there's Dale, Dale Trumbore has also added to the mm. series, which has been great. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, we might release it as a special edition kind of. No, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, as much as I want to keep talking about cats, we have sadly come to the last question of the official episode. However, you could hear more if you <laughs> become a patron of the Bandroom podcast and you can learn more about that. By going to patreon.com slash bandroom pod, where you can hear the mystery bonus episode that not one of us even knows what it's gonna be about. But you could hear that and much more. But before we get to that, uh John Mackey, if you if you could give one singular piece of advice to up-and-coming composers or just musicians in general, what would it be?
2: Um, it would be uh don't be a dick. That's really, <laughs> <Yes>. that's really <laughs> That's really it. And I didn't know that for a long time. Like Mm -hmm. I seriously, I was a dick uh, for sure. And I think I still am in my way, but (laughs) it's with love rather than with anger. Like it used to be. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, And and that started when I was at Juilliard, not because it wasn't Juilliard's fault. It was Mm -hmm. my fault for feeling like I had major uh, imposter syndrome when I got there. And my way Mm -hmm. of getting past that was to act – incredibly overly confident uh, and try to make myself believe that i was not only did i belong there but i probably belonged there more than anyone else and Mm -hmm. i didn't believe any of that for a minute but it meant that i was just uh, i was insufferable i think and and awful in rehearsals and um it would be really rude to people in rehearsals who didn't show up prepared or whatever and Mm -hmm. um fortunately had uh two friends that I worked with several times that both, you know, took me aside and were like, this is not how you uh, get us to play better. You know, we're, uh, we actually are, we're actually quite good. We're at Juilliard (laughs) as well. And so, um, uh, and we, you know, maybe that person didn't practice enough before this rehearsal, but I'm sure they will by the next Mm -hmm. rehearsal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got a lot going on, so you need to not be nasty. And if you're nicer to us, we will play better too. So yeah. you can tell us what we're doing wrong, but there's a way to do that without making us mad and playing worse. So, um, and, uh, yeah, I, but it, I don't, I don't, I don't even know that I quite bought it even then necessarily, you know, like, I mean, I guess I did fairly, like I, I tried to turn it around fairly soon, but, uh, you know, there are, my life would have been better. I think big, like I can tell like a specific thing that would have been better in my life if I just not been a jerk yet. Juilliard is, I would have been better friends with Eric Whitaker sooner because Mm -hmm. I was, you know, it's Eric Whitaker has always been Eric Whitaker. Like he was like that first week (laughs) of Juilliard. Like he always looked like that. He was (laughs) always that charming. He was always that funny and kind and like generous and always wrote music that good, at least from the time I knew him. And I was like, there's no way. There's something up with this dude. I, I'm sure there's something I'm going to hate about him besides the fact that he's perfect. I've, there's got to be something yeah. to, to, to not – I don't, I don't know if I trust this guy. Um, and we were friendly, but I never – like I just – I didn't I, – I think it's hard not to be kind of just like uh, in awe and envious and jealous in a way was how I felt about Eric when I met him. Um and clearly we're fine event, but it took a long time for me to like, you know, if I had just been open and like just felt like I can just be myself. And if mm-hmm. someone's probably honestly better than I am at something, like t- I can be okay with them being better and yeah. not think well, there's got to be something that that's wrong though. Um I just wish I had just been a better human being, honestly, at the time. Um because Eric really is as wonderful as. Uh, he seemed at the time and I just refused to be a good enough person to believe it. And yeah, you know, I just regret that I lost several years of friendship with him because of right. that. Um, through no fault of his own, I was just a jerk. <laughs>
0: there you go.
2: So don't, so don't be a jerk also. And if you're a player, like, don't be a jerk because, uh, there's someone else who plays as well as you, who's not a jerk. And so like, if yeah. you're a butthead in rehearsal and, you can play well. There's probably someone who can play well who's not a butthead in rehearsal. Next and time they'll just get, get that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. right. Like,
3: yeah.
2: it's pretty. It's pretty easy to just not
3: do that. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's like That's the number advice. one piece of freelance advice I've ever been given. <laughs> You're not Being special. Nice be nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Be prepared. Be early. Be prepared and be nice. You know? Yeah. yeah. So,
0: There you go. Well, this is uh, you've just been so so generous with your time. And uh, as you know, as someone who is a high school student who looked up to you as a superstar, it has been just a wonderful treat to talk to you um, about just, you know, just about being human. (laughs) And, and I know that, um, you know, personally it's just, yeah, it's really great to hear from, from someone that, you know, I've, I've looked up to as a superstar and still do, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) well, thank you. This has been, this has been really, really
2: great and and really good questions and you're both lovely.
0: Thank you. you.
1: you. (laughs) It's been great to chat.
0: Thanks so much for spending time with us in the Bandroom. If you want to learn more about anything that we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com.
1: If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast. Give us a rating and review, and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it.
0: If you really love the show, maybe you should consider donating to our Patreon page where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people.
1: Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, and your comment might be featured in a future episode of BRP.
0: Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the Bandroom.